much, team, for leading us to worship. Thank you, Chris and Brooke, for leading us. Wonderful on a Father's Day to have a father-daughter lead us in worship. That wonderful song. Amen. Happy Father's Day. Oh, come on, man. Happy. <laughs> what a lame bunch of men. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. All right, I, I thought I would hear woo, woo, woo coming up from this crowd. It's wonderful. Thank you, dads, and uh, so excited for this day to honor you. Thank you for your uh, influence and how God's using you, and we are so grateful for this day to honor all the dads here, and uh, grateful for the little gift that's being given. I saw that on my desk. I tried to figure it out. I don't know how that's going to work exactly. Uh, it's got some suction cups on it. And I thought, if, well, if it doesn't work for my phone, it makes a handy soap dish. <laughs> so we can use it for that maybe. But uh, it's, it's a nice gift. You know, it's, it's hard to find little gifts to give on these special days. But I always chuckle when we try because the worst one we ever gave. Many years ago, I had nothing to do with it. And I'm so glad. <laughs> On Mother's Day, we passed out at the back doors as the moms left, little magnets for the refrigerator that held up a to-do list. Can you believe that? <laughs> That's the way to win mom's heart. That's for sure. So these, these are better. Happy Father's Day. And this is one of those occasions when God gives us a, a text as we're going through a a book of the Bible that fits the occasion. And so I'm going to encourage you to turn there now on this Father's Day for what really is a Father's Day message found in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, if you'll turn there, it's page 1014. If you'd like to use the Bible that's provided for you there, page 1014. We are involved in a summer series here through 1 Peter, this great letter, and our theme that we have set for this is excellence in exile. Excellence in exile, li living faithfully, faithful living in a fallen world. The idea of being an exile is written throughout this letter. So appropriate for those first century Christians living in that culture of Rome, so appropriate for us as Christians in this 21st century, we are exiles. Home is not here, but while we are on our journey, we have the opportunity to be faithful and to live with excellence for the glory of our great God and Father. And this morning, I want us to look at this passage. It's truly a Father's Day message. It's a message from the Father to us as his children. And we're going to begin reading chapter 1, verse 14, and we'll read through the end of the chapter this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through verse 25. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy 
for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all the glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. A Father's Day message, a Father's Day message from the father of the exiles to his children on their way home. And it's a message about how to behave ourselves. It's a message from the father of the exiles to us, his children, who are on our journey home. And it's a message about how to behave ourselves while we're on this journey of exile but headed home. And there's two things I want you to see that are the focus of our time this morning, the word, that should characterize the lives of us as believers as we're on our way home. Because we're headed to the Father, our lives should be lives of holy fear and holy love. Holy fear and holy love. Holy fear. Now, maybe you've heard some people say that fear should never be a motivation for any follower of Jesus Christ. Fear should never be a motivation for any follower of God. And sometimes you just wonder where we learn those foolish things. Not from the Bible. The Bible very strongly commends the idea of fear, the fear of God. The Bible says through Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus, the most compassionate and loving person who ever walked the face of the earth said this, 
Fear him who is able to cast your soul into hell. The apostle Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to fear God? Well, fearing God does not mean a a craven, cringing, and cowering. That's, That's not what it means. To fear God does not mean to cringe and cower in his presence. No, the fear of God, listen, it combines the ideas of the deepest respect and the deepest devotion. The deepest respect and the deepest devotion. If you want a good definition for the fear of God, here's what I like to think of it as I understand the scriptures. The definition I would use is this, reverential love. The fear of the Lord is reverential love. Amazing verse that struck me a couple years ago when I was reading through the Psalms. I don't know that I'd ever really noted it this way before. Psalm 2, verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Reverential love. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice, the deepest of devotion, but also with trembling, the deepest respect. A good concept for the idea of the fear of the Lord, folks, is just maybe this phrase, awestruck. Awestruck. Only God really is awesome. Peter says here that we should be, as we walk our lives out in the fear of the Lord, we should be awestruck by God's glory. Awestruck by his glory. And that glory is seen in a couple of ways that that Peter reminds us about. This is what struck the apostle Peter who loved and knew Jesus so well. This is what struck him with awe. And that was God's glory seen in a couple of ways. God's glory in his justice. The justice of God. Verse 17 When you think about justice, you think about a judge, don't you? Verse 17, and if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now let's just let that sink in. The justice of God. Notice he calls this God, he calls him Father. 
and says, if you call him father, here's how you should live your life. Now, that word father is a word of relationship and it is an incredible word. Listen carefully. Did you know that no one ever referred to God as his or her father until Jesus did and he told his disciples to do the same. The Israelites referred to God as the father of the nation, but no Israelite ever would dare to refer to Jehovah as dear father. But Jesus said, he is your father. Here's how you should pray. Our father, Abba, dearest father who is in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. Reverential love. He is our father. We have a relationship with him. He's God, our father. But he's also our judge. He says he that we call father will judge everyone impartially. Makes no difference to God, your rank or your bank. Before almighty God, all ground is level ground. And he is judging us without respect of who we are. It means literally without regard to the face. God doesn't look at the external of a person. He looks to what is inside and coming out. He judges impartially. And if we believe that, what should that do to us? Verse 17, it says, this should cause us to conduct yourself with, what's the word? Fear, reverence, rejoicing that he's our father, but trembling at the fact that he's our Judge who judges impartially. And notice he says, you should do this throughout the time of your exile. That word exile is a key thought, as I have said, throughout this whole letter. We're going to see it again and again. But what I want you to see here is that this word for exile is not the same as the word used in verse 1. In verse 1, he says, we are elect exiles. And the word there means to be people who are walking through. But this word exile is an interesting word. Do you know what it literally means? It literally means alongside of the house. Why would an exile be someone who's alongside of the house? It means as followers of Jesus, in a sense, we're always going to be outsiders. Why? Because this world is not our home. How many people vainly as followers of Jesus want to fit in more than anything else when God says by our very nature we don't fit in. We're not supposed to fit in. Exactly. And notice, for some of us here, this struck me this week. 
conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. There's there's no retirement from this, regardless of how long you've been a Christian. There's no relaxing from this focus that I am to conduct my life with reverential love for God and all the way through I'm to do that. How sad for people 20, 30, 40 years follow Jesus. And then in the final quarter of life, bring shame to his name. Conduct yourself in every manner of your life with reverential love throughout, all the way through. Now, what's the reason for doing that? What's the motivation? What is the motivation that makes us have a reverential love for God? What is it? Fear that he's going to get us? Fear that he's going to zap us? What is it? No, it is we are all struck by his grace. We have been gripped by grace. A Christian is someone who has been gripped by God in his grace and brought to himself through Jesus Christ. And a Christian who worships Christ never gets over the wonder of it all. That God reached down into the cesspool where we were and gripped us by his grace and brought us to himself and gave us a new life in Christ. Here are two verses, friends, that are the deepest of the Bible. I will tell you right now, very, very honestly, I won't even begin to touch the surface of the treasures that are in these two verses. Look at verse 18 and 19. What motivates us? What motivates us? Knowing that you were ransomed You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Amazing grace. There's three profound realities of grace that I want to give you this morning. Three words that if we could just etch them on our minds, our lives, our conduct in our exile would be guided by them. Three words, you ought to write them down. Maybe on the back of your bulletin, write on a piece of paper, write them on your mirror when you'll see yourself in the mirror in the morning, write it there so you'll see the realities of your life as a follower of Jesus because of his amazing grace. Here is what is the reality. Number one, the first word, ransom. Knowing that you were ransomed, that word ransom means to purchase And it was specifically used to purchase and to set free when it was used in regard to slaves. They were purchased 
and set free. Christians are ransomed. We've been purchased and set free. Ransomed from what? Look what it says. We've been ransomed from empty lives, futile lives. Friends, apart from the saving grace of Jesus, life is meaningless and futile. It's empty, futile. He says you've been ransomed from empty, futile lives inherited from your forefathers. Now here he's specifically talking to Gentile people. People who had been raised up in a culture of paganism. Their mother and father, pagans. Grandfathers, pagans. Their ancestry, pagans. The worship of false gods. And now it's, they see it's all empty and futile and they've been ransomed from that. Emptiness. Many of us here today can celebrate the faith of our fathers and our mothers. If you have had a Christian father or mother, you are incredibly blessed. And if you've had a Christian mother and father, you are doubly blessed. I love it when the Bible says, as David worshiped, you are my father's God. You're my God. And I thank the Lord that I learned so much of God through my earthly father. I, I Cherish his memory on this Father's Day. But some of you here today, you have no heritage of a good father, a godly father. Quite frankly, for some of you, Father's Day brings back a lot of thoughts of pain, a lot of tapes that are still in your mind and will be there until they're washed clean in heaven. And you have no godly heritage. I want to tell you something. You may not have a Christian in your family for a hundred generations back. But I have a word for you. If you are a humble believer in Jesus, here's a word for you. You are ransom. You are the generation of grace. You are the generation of grace. You've been ransomed. You've been emancipated. That's what the word ransomed has the idea. You've been emancipated. Set free from slavery. Service of slavery. In 1862, President Lincoln determined that he would publish an Emancipation Proclamation. And it was to take effect on January 1st, 1863. He did not want to make it public until the Union armies had won a victory, lest it seemed that it was a desperate attempt to gain favor. But what he did in issuing that proclamation the Emancipation Proclamation, he changed the focus of the war, the Civil War, from being just a war to preserve the Union 
to a war of preserving the union and ending slavery. Change the whole nature of the war, its public purposes. The Emancipation Proclamation declared this. Any person enslaved in any state or any part of a state in which the citizens of that state are in rebellion against the United States, those persons enslaved shall be then, thenceforth, and forever free. Now the reality, the Emancipation Proclamation did not free one slave. Not one slave was freed by the publication of the Emancipation Proclamation. They would not be freed until freedom, their freedom was purchased. Purchased by rivers of blood. And for two and a half years, the bloody civil war would go on until that proclamation would have authority. It had to be carried out in blood. And my friend, listen, Jesus Christ is the great emancipator. He is the great emancipator and through him we are ransomed. Through him we are truly free because of the second grace reality. I told you there's three of them. The second one is redeemed, ransomed and redeemed. Look at verse 19. You've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Redeemed has the idea of the price paid. Ransom is the act of liberating. The redemption price is the price that was paid for that liberty. And what was the Price. What was the price of the ransom of our souls? Look at what Peter tells us. The precious blood of Christ. Isn't it interesting? Old Peter looks back and thinks of what he saw at Calvary. And he says his blood the blood of Jesus was the precious blood. Why is the blood of Jesus precious? It's precious because it's precious to God. The blood of Jesus was the blood of God's own son. The blood of Jesus was the blood of God the son. The Bible tells us that God has purchased us with his own blood. Some people say God doesn't have blood. He did when Jesus was here. And he offered up his life. He gave his life, his death. And that's what blood here is to represent. It is the, his death, his bloody death was so precious to God. The blood of his son 
But friends, listen, the blood of Jesus is precious to us as well, isn't it? Because the blood of Christ is not only the blood of the Son, it's also the blood of our Savior, our substitute, the one who took our place. And that blood is powerful and precious, right? Sing this with me. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Sing it. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And God's people said what? Amen. Not to Sam's singing. You can tell Doug's job is secure, right? But it is precious. Washes away my sin. You're not stuck. You're not stuck by the sins of your forefathers. You're not stuck by your birth. You're not stuck by your life because the precious blood of Christ is sufficient to satisfy God's justice and to change your heart. It's the blood of Christ. That is the truth and I hope that's your testimony. I hope your testimony is I have no hope to wash away my sins but the blood of Jesus and I pray the blood of Jesus is precious to you. Gripped by grace. Three gospel realities. Ransomed. Redeemed. And here's the third one. Rescued. (laughs) Rescued. God had a purpose. And his purpose was a purpose of rescue. A purpose from eternity. To rescue you and me. Look at verse 20. Speaking of this lamb who shed his blood, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You see this? God's eternal purpose. God's eternal purpose is a purpose of ransom and rescue and redemption. He says that the Lamb of God, Jesus, was foreknown. Do you see that? Same word that is used in verse 2 that we are the elect of God by God's grace through the foreknowledge of God the Father. It doesn't mean something just known before it happens, as I told you a couple weeks ago. It means a loving relationship 
from eternity past. And it says here that he was the lamb. Notice this. Who was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now what a thought. What a thought. Before Jesus was the creator. He was the redeemer. He is the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. Some people have the misconception that God was surprised by the sin of Adam and Eve and he had to come up with a plan to fix things. But the Bible says before God ever said, let there be light, he already had determined through Christ the Redeemer to save his people. Wow. You say, Sam, I just don't understand that. Well, join the club. (laughs) I don't understand electricity, but I don't stand around in the dark. (laughs) I enjoy the light. I'm not going to try to figure out electricity. I, I never could understand it all, but I thank God for it. I don't understand how Jesus could be the redeemer in time before he became creator But I thank God for this. My salvation was not an afterthought. Neither was yours. Before God created the heavens and the earth, he had already, Christian, determined to save your soul. Wow. Our salvation was God's eternal purpose and it provides us now what? An earthly purpose. An earthly purpose because of God's eternal purpose. What? Verse 20. I I recognize this was for the sake of you. This happened for your sake, for my sake. So that we might be believers in God. So that right now we might have our faith and our hope in God. A living hope. This eternal purpose of God to send his son to give him up for us sinners and to raise him in power and glory. That eternal purpose gives me a purpose every day I put my feet on the ground. That I am a believer in God. Jesus did this for me. And I have a living hope. Because there's a tomb that is empty and there is a throne in heaven that is occupied. And that's my hope. An empty tomb and a throne that is occupied. And that gives you the strength sometimes just to take another step toward home. How different how different our lives would be if we could just grip these three realities. Every day, I'm ransomed. I'm redeemed. I'm rescued. Think of what that would mean for us. 
and think of what it should mean for us. And when I say us, folks, look around. I mean us. Because holy fear of this glory of God's salvation should bring us this, and I can only touch on it, but we will come back to it a time and time again. It should bring to us holy love, holy fear, reverential love should cause us to have a holy love for others. You know, so sad. I believe with all my heart, one of the most unloving places I've ever been in my entire life. And I've been there twice. One of the most unloving places I've ever been in my life is inside the church built on top of the empty tomb of Jesus. In Jerusalem, the church of the Holy Sepulchre goes back to the fourth century, built by the mother of the emperor Constantine over the cave that was believed by those earliest Christians to be where Jesus was buried and rose. But my friend, today, that church of the Holy Sepulcher is dark inside. It's depressing and it's divided. I mean divided. The church of the Holy Sepulcher, the site on top there is literally divided between the Armenian church, the Catholic church, and the Eastern Orthodox Church. You literally walk from one to the other and you know when you've crossed the line even though you can't see it. It is so divided, listen carefully. In the early 1700s, they finally tried to figure a way to divide the church which of those churches should have a part of it. And so they hurried up to get it done and someone left a ladder beneath a stained glass window. You look it up. It's been there for 300 years because the people who put it there were from one of the churches and they cannot go over to the other part of the church to get their ladder. Google it. You know everything's true that you Google. <laughs> I've seen it with my own eyes. The ladder has not been moved in 300 years because the churches cannot agree over who has authority on what part of the church over the empty tomb of Jesus. How different are churches with the spirit of Jesus? The living spirit of Jesus, right? Walls come down. Barriers that cannot be thought of being overcome humanly are overcome. We've got a team on the way to Greece. They may be touching down right now. They're going to be serving at the Cosmos Center with our partners, the Romeos in Athens. 
They're going to be ministering this week to refugees, thousands of refugees every month coming ashore in Greece, trying to make it from the turmoil in the Middle East to some safety in Europe. Did you know, listen carefully, there is a church meeting on the grounds of the Cosmos Center made up of refugees from Pakistan and refugees from India. As far as they know, it is the only church in the world where Pakistanis and Indians from India worship together because the animosity of the peoples is so great. But friends, guess what? All that comes down in Jesus. It doesn't matter. Nationality, ancestry, status, language, ancient hatred, and present day politics should never divide the people of the living God because we have the spirit of Jesus that makes us one. And he who unites us is greater than anything that divides us. Holy love. We're called to be overwhelmed by God's goodness. Overwhelmed by God's goodness to a life of love. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. What's the outcome? A sincere brotherly love. That word is Philadelphian, literally, Philadelphian. A sincere brotherly love, sensitive brotherly love, love one another earnestly. That word love is agape. <laughs> love one another earnestly. You know, P Peter was an expert of these two words, agape and love. Because Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And Peter would not use the word agape. He used the word philo, Philadelphia, a noun form. See, Philadelphia, philo, means a sensitivity. As Christians, we're to have a sensitivity that we're in the same family. And agape means love one another. It means sacrificial love. Love one another earnestly. It means you're determined to do it, even if it kills you. You, you choose to do it. You cannot serve the spirit of Christ and wait till you feel love in order to love. Because the love of God has been poured out in your heart, you choose to love, right? Holy love. It's a love that's alive, a life of love, and it's alive through the living word. What causes this to happen? What does God use to cause this miracle we're describing to happen? I mean, how does it happen? What does God use to make this happen? Since you have been born again, verse 23, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. It's the word of God. 
The word of God is alive. It's alive and it's eternal. It's living and abiding. It's powerful and it never stops. When we read this word, we are taking in the living word of God, alive, eternal. And it changes your whole value system. All flesh is like grass. Look at verse 24. All flesh is like grass. He's quoting Isaiah. All the glory of the flesh, all the glory of man is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The word of the Lord, the message of the Lord. What man esteems perishes. What God says lasts forever. Knoxville this weekend, there's a celebration of the new morality. And the new morality is just old lies. Friends, God has spoken. God has spoken about what is right and what is wrong. And God is speaking. That's what he's saying. He's speaking. But now listen to me. God Almighty is a God of love and he never speaks words of hate. And he never fills anybody's heart to go out and do acts of hatred. How can we hate people who do not serve our God when some of us didn't serve him for decades? And all of us don't serve him as we ought to right now. No one knows the love of God in Christ and goes out and carries out hate. But this is true. God has spoken. And what does he speak? He speaks good news. Well, what they're doing is terrible sin. Yes, God has provided for that. And some of us, what we're doing, terrible sin. And God has provided for that in Christ. It's the word of the gospel. That the precious blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. And we are all sinners. And we're all in need of forgiveness. And sin can be removed. It's not etched into our brains in our DNA. Sin is not etched into our identity by choices that we make. Sin can be overwhelmed and thinking can be changed by the regenerating power of the word of God that brings to us the power of the living Christ. And that's the gospel. And friends, I want to tell you, Jesus came as a ransom and he didn't come to ransom religious people. He said, I've come to seek and to save those who are what? Lost. And if you're here today and you feel lost, you sense that you're lost, Jesus came for you. And he paid for all that has made you lost. And that's the good news. Father.
We bless your holy name. And thank you that where sin has abounded, your grace in Christ has superabounded. I pray right now, Lord, I pray. I pray that with reverence we will listen to the voice of God. Forgive us, God, that we hear your word and we quickly put it aside to go chase after the futile things of this life. Lord, let not the enemy snatch away this word. But I pray this will be the word of the gospel, the glory of Christ. And I pray that you will redeem sinners here in this room now through the broadcast of this truth as it goes out on the internet. May the word of the living God bring the new birth. And may you bring freedom to anybody enslaved now as they look to Christ, they trust in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace.